Good evening, everyone. Erev Tov. Welcome to Echoes of Eden this evening as uh, it's another double portion. Uh, so we've had, I think, three uh, in the book of Leviticus. Also will be the conclusion of Sefer Vayikra, the book of Leviticus this evening. Uh, so next week when we meet, we will be picking things up uh, in the fourth book of the Torah, Bamidbar, or as it's known in English, uh, the book of Numbers. So that's where we are in uh, the Torah. We'll talk a little bit about uh, what the uh, name of the double portion is, its meaning, and so forth uh, after we begin uh, with the blessing. So let's, uh, let's pray. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ho'elam, asher kedishanu b'mitzvotav v'sivanu le'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to be immersed into the words and the matters of Torah. Amen. So this week, as I said, end of book of Leviticus, which is the 32nd and 33rd division of the Torah. Uh, it's known as Bahar Bechuchatai, uh, Bahar being the, the uh, 32nd portion, Bechuchatai being the 33rd portion of the Torah. Uh, and it covers the last three chapters of the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 25, 26, and 27. Uh, and so uh, what's going on in this portion, kind of a, a good year, a blimp. All right. So the book of Leviticus, when we started it, we talked about it being a, a book of holiness. You remember, it's the book that uh, Jesus would have learned first. It would have been the very first book of the Bible Jesus would have studied and learned because that's where all Jewish children start their learning experience, including up to today uh, in modern Jewish communities and in Israel uh, around. Three, three years of age, they start learning the letters of the alphabet. Uh, once they can become forming letters into words and so forth, they begin to learn to read from Leviticus. And that's because it's this, this book about what it means to be set apart, to be unique, to be called for God's purposes. And as we've kind of gone through the book, we've kind of kept those kind of ideas and thoughts uh, in mind. And so in, on a very surface level, much of what it dealt with were the roles of the priest, and you can almost see it as a priestly manual. Uh, also dealt with a lot of the sacrifices, but we spent that time understanding, remember the Hebrew word for sacrifice is korban, uh, so not sacrifice in our typical understanding, but means to be brought near, so anything that brings us near to God, and so we looked at the underpinning spiritual technology of the sacrificial system, uh, and how that that technology is still available for us today to connect with and so forth. And so as we come to the end of the portion, uh, it kind of uh, ends, uh, to me, in a, a very kind of abrupt manner and pretty, pretty uh, harsh and straightforward. Uh, but the name of the portions, Bahar. Bahar means uh, on mount, on the mountain. Um, Be is a preposition on, and har means mountain or hill or the mount. Uh, so Bihar means on the mount. It's referring, of course, to on Mount Sinai, as the rest of the verse would say. Uh, that's found in Leviticus 25, verse 1. And the name of the second portion in our double portion, Bechuchatai, uh, means uh, in my statutes, uh, in my commandments. Uh, there the word for commandment is not mitzvah, but hok. 
C-H-O-K, Choch. Choch means commandment or statue, but it um, in the Torah always refers to those uh, statutes, uh, commandments, ordinances uh, that often are beyond explanation are kind of defy a common explanation. So, for instance, the commandment, thou shalt not murder, uh, that does, that's not real deep. That kind of makes sense to us. Or thou shalt not steal. Like, yeah, that, that makes sense. That would make for an orderly society if everybody didn't steal from everyone. But then you have other commandments like take a female red heifer, uh, burn it, and take its ashes, mix it with living water, and your sins are forgiven. Right? And you're kind of like... Okay, uh, I don't, it's not quite as obvious. That would be called a hoch as opposed to a mitzvah. And so bechuchatai has the word hoch within it. Uh, so uh, in my statutes, and that word bechuchatai occurs in Leviticus 26, uh, verse 3. And so what happens in this double portion is uh, kind of recounts that on the mountain of Sinai, Bahar Sinai, uh, that God had commanded Moses the laws of the sabbatical year. And so now they're being recounted to the people. So back in Exodus, when Moses went up on Sinai and received uh, the Torah, the word of God uh, to him to communicate to the people, he was given the laws regarding what's called a sabbatical year, namely that every seventh year all work on the land should cease and its produce should become free for the taking for all, uh, human beings and beasts alike. And then it goes on to talk about seven sabbatical cycles, that is seven times seven, is followed then by a 50th year, and that 50th year is known as a jubilee year, or in Hebrew, a yovel, but a jubilee year on which the work of the land ceases, uh, all indentured servants are set free, and all the ancestral estates, not every piece of land, but the ancestral land, so meaning the 12 tribes of uh, Benjamin had acquired quite a bit of Naphtali, or uh, if Dan had acquired quite a bit of Judah or something of that nature. It all goes back to the original allotments. Uh, the, the, it reverts back to the original owners and the original tribes. Uh, additional laws governing the sale of land, uh, the prohibition against fraud and usury. Uh, these are also things that are given uh, in this week's double portion. Uh, and so in many ways, it's, it's, again, if you think about the overall theme of Leviticus, is this holiness and this being set apart. This is one of the things that would set the people of God. This is one of the things that would set Israel apart from the other nations, just as if it were practiced today, it most certainly would. Uh, who, who would ever have heard of every 50 years, everybody's credit cards are, are wiped clean, Everybody's property that maybe their grandfather sold is given back to them. Uh, all debts are released, uh, and uh, everybody's given a clean slate to start over again. Um, that's something that is unique. It's something that clearly set uh, the people of Israel, the children of 
uh, God apart from the other nations, including uh, not charging interest if you give someone a loan and uh, other business practices that are kind of outlined in there. Uh, it's very clear that it was designed to be this is one of the things that makes us unique. This is one of the things that sets us apart. Then, uh, as Bechuchatai uh, comes into play, uh, God promises uh, that if the people of Israel keep his commandments, they will experience in the land material prosperity, uh, and they will dwell securely in their homeland. Um, but as always, whenever we talk about reward and punishment in the scriptures, it behooves us to review um, the biblical concept behind that and uh, not fall into the temptation of thinking it means if I obey, then I always get blessed and it's a one-to-one -one reciprocal kind of relationship. But rather, reward and punishment when connected to God's mitzvot, his connections. Remember, the, the word for commandment really means connection. It has to do with just that, the relationship you have via the connections. And so God has given us, uh, for instance, very nice three-pronged outlets in the wall to plug into. He's given us nice, you know, uh, Ethernet cables. He's given us, uh, you know, all kinds of ways and plugs to connect with him. But if I decide I'm going to take my fork and shove it in the electrical socket, or if I decide I'm going to pour water on top of my computer's circuit board, uh, what happens, right? Probably not good things, not good things at all. And in fact, it could have not only consequences for me, but it could have consequences for my whole household or as I burn it down, or it could have consequences for the community as I, I blow the power surge and cause my neighbors to lose their power and so forth. But I can't blame the electricity for it. I can't blame the outlet for it, right? It's how I chose to connect to it. And since I chose improper connection, I obviously get the natural consequences of that. That's how the connections with God work. He's given ways to connect to him. When you're connecting with him, things flow better. It doesn't mean that it's ever, everything's always perfect, but it means things flow. And when you improperly connect, uh, they don't flow so well. Uh, and, you know, and we use language like, you know, uh, if an electrician is, is doing something and he gets a little shock, he might say, oh, man, that bit me or whatever, right? Well, it didn't really bite you, okay, right? It's just a phrase, but it didn't bite you. Uh, the electricity, as far as it's coming in, really doesn't change, just as God doesn't change, but how we connect to him does. And so then the Torah, being in the language of men, being in the language we can relate to, puts that in the understanding of reward and punishment but it's really about connection and so they have this promise that hey these are these are fail-proof safe ways to connect to your creator these are ways to connect within your community these will help your community work better these will help people live and get along with one another better these are the systems for when people aren't getting along how to fix that like and when you're following these connections then you can naturally expect positive things. And likewise, it also delivers the harsh rebuke uh, that if you improperly connect, there are serious consequences. Uh, but nevertheless, it's interesting as the portion ends and as the book of Leviticus ends, and it even kind of ends in that prophetic way of saying uh, an, an expectation that there'll be some point 
uh, in the history of these people that they will greatly disconnect, God makes this promise. He says at the end of the, the book, even when they are in the land of their enemies, which means because of their improper connection, they no longer have the safety promise, and so enemies can take them. God says, I will not cast them away, nor will I abhor them, nor destroy them, or break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. And so God makes this very, very amazing promise to the people that no matter how unfaithful you may be to me, I will always be faithful to you. Um, that's a powerful statement of grace right there that no matter how many times and how many ways and in what ways you may forsake me, I will not forsake you. And then the book of Leviticus concludes with the final rules, if you will, the hoch uh, on how to calculate the values of different types of pledges and vows made to God, and it then also speaks about tithing uh, of produce and livestock. Uh, and so that is an overview of those final three chapters of the book of Leviticus. So with that, let's kind of look into uh, the text. I want to look in Leviticus chapter 25, uh, verses 8 through 10, and it reads this way. And you shall count for yourself seven sabbatical years, so seven times seven, seven years, seven times. And the days of these seven sabbatical years shall amount to 49 years, right? Seven times seven. For you and um, for you, uh, you shall sanctify the 50th year uh, and proclaim freedom for slaves throughout the land for all who live on it. And then he says, it shall be a jubilee year for you, that 50th year. And you shall return each man to his property, all right, those ancestral lands and so forth, go back to their original owners, and you shall return each man to his family. And that's kind of speaking of indentured servanthood. Uh, that would be if I borrowed $50,000 from you and I could not pay it back, uh, then it would be, okay, well, you now work for me, uh, and, but instead of me giving you a paycheck, we'll, we'll figure out what your paycheck would be, and once you uh, have worked off $50,000, you're free to go. But in the year of Jubilee, all of that's forgiven. All debts are forgiven. Uh, and so with that idea, you know, you can begin to think into the Gospels, into uh, Luke chapter 4, the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, when he goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, uh, he actually goes in to the synagogue in Nazareth, and it lets us know what passages he read from the book of Isaiah. And the synagogue then, as well as now, has always used a lectionary, just like we are using in uh, our Monday evenings together and Echoes of Eden. And in addition to the assigned Torah portion for the week, there is an assigned prophetic reading that goes along with it. Uh, and so you can tell when Jesus read that portion. And he read it based on the portion on Yom Kippur, but on the year of the Jubilee, because that, the year of Jubilee, according to Leviticus, is always announced, the upcoming year of Jubilee, is always announced on Yom Kippur. Uh, and so Jesus announces the year of Jubilee, that it's coming, but think about what that implies for his ministry, right? That 
all debts will be canceled, uh, that all of, all of those, because oft, how often does the scriptures, including think like the Lord's Prayer, often speak of sins or transgressions or transpasses in terms of a monetary debt. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, right, as uh, some translations put it, because it's using that kind of language. And so Jesus is very much tying into the whole idea of the Jubilee, uh, into his ministry and what his ministry is about and what he will be accomplishing through it. So because the 50th Jubilee year follows those seven times seven count of 49 years, it's interesting that Rashi, who is one of the great commentators of uh, the Torah, he says that one of the meanings of this, uh, this verse here that we uh, read from, Leviticus 25, beginning in verse 8, is that even if the seven sabbatical years are not observed by a particular individual, the 50th Jubilee year should, be, should still be observed and celebrated. In other words, as he looks at the flow of the Hebrew language and so forth, he's saying, you know, seven sets of seven. Well, what if you didn't observe one of those seven sets of seven? What if you're, you know, 80 years old and you've been through them, but you or lax in one of them, or lax in all of them, or lax in some of them, uh, does that disqualify you from the Jubilee? And Rashi's answer, <coughs> excuse me, is no. That no matter what, you should celebrate and observe the 50th year, the Jubilee year. Now, believe it or not, this is actually quite relevant to us today um, in different ways, surely, but it, it does have something to say to us. Uh, to emphasize this point, I want to tell you a story that uh, Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach uh, once told. Uh, Rabbi Karlbach uh, recounted one time when uh, Rabbi Karlbach was a very, very famous rabbi of the 20th century, uh, an amazing, an amazing person. And uh, he, he's known for his stories and so forth. Confirmations in the worship center. Uh, he's known for his stories and his songs and uplifting people. Uh, he's based primarily uh, in Jerusalem, but he traveled a lot. And so one time he made it to Waco, Texas. So I want you to think of this Eastern European uh, Jewish rabbi who's uh, immigrated to Israel, now lives in Israel, finds his way to Waco, Texas, all right? And there he goes into what's known as a mikvah, which is the the religious place where Jews have their ceremonial washing or baptism, if you will. And so when he gets to the entrance of this mikvah, this, this holy place of worship, he saw a very large man with a cowboy hat on, a big metal chain around his neck, uh, preparing to enter into the waters of the mikvah. In the rabbi's eyes, this person certainly didn't look very Jewish, and he certainly didn't look very religious or observant. He kind of didn't fit in. Uh, and the rabbi was wondering, like, why is he here? Uh, so he found a polite way to engage the man and asked him that question. And the man revealed that he was originally from the city of Vichnitz in the Ukraine. And the Sabbath before he and his family were able to leave for the United States of America... His father had taken him to see one of the more charismatic rabbis. And there was a huge crowd there. So 
in order to kind of protect his son from the crowd crushing in on this uh, beloved teacher, he put his young son then under the table right next to the rabbi. And at one point, the rabbi became very emotional, and he stood up, and he told everyone gathered there that when you, when you want to do a mitzvah, when you want to do a connection, when you want to connect to God, when you want to do something holy, when you want to, you know, live a sanctified life, when you want to do something positive in your relationship with God, he says, whatever you do, don't listen to the inner voice that is telling you, oh, so now you want to do a mitzvah. Now you want to make a connection. Now you want to do something holy and godly. Who do you think you're fooling? And then, of course, your mind, it becomes the devil's workshop, can begin to play tricks on you and say, you're not this ter- person. Everybody knows you're not this person. If your friends found out you were trying to do this, they would laugh you off the planet. They would, they would give you such a hard time. They wouldn't believe you. Your family knows you. They know you're not sincere. And so then the rabbi yelled, you tell that negative voice in my name, leave me alone because I don't care what I did before and I don't care what I'll do in the future. Because right now, all I want to do is serve God. Upon sitting back down, the rabbi put his hand on that young boy who would soon, much later, I guess, really uh, be the cowboy in Waco, Texas. But he put his hand under the table and said to him, you hear what I'm saying, don't you? Never forget. And so the man told Rabbi Shlomo that sometimes, you know, He's observant. Sometimes he goes to worship, and sometimes he doesn't. And sometimes he fasts on Yom Kippur and observes it the way you're supposed to, but sometimes he pigs out on Yom Kippur. And to be honest, he said, the evil inclination, my sinful nature, most of the time, it gets the better of me. But he then told the rabbi, every once in a while, I have the deepest desire in me to do something holy and to connect to God. And he said, on this afternoon, for reasons I have no idea or cannot understand, I have a tremendous urge to be in this mikvah and to be in this place and make that connection. He said that he didn't know what he would do after that, but right now he knew he needed to go to the mikvah. Now, for many of us, this story should have some ring of truth to it whether it's for those who are very regular in their spiritual practices and relationship with God, or whether it's for those who are not. It's still relevant. So many times, for reasons we cannot explain, we we know the language to attribute it to the, the movement of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, but from our just plain perspective, there are moments we have that we just don't know where it's coming from, but we feel called to do something holy. We feel called to do something good, right, and salutary, whether it's worship or study scripture or volunteer or help someone or whatever it may be. We just get that feeling and we get that calling to improve or elevate ourselves to a new spiritual level. But when we look at our lives, we hear an inner voice often telling us, who are you fooling? Who are you trying to fool? You won't keep it up. 
You won't succeed. You won't be back next week. You'll forget about this. It's not the real you. How many times have you made pledges in the past that starting now, things will change, and yet you never kept them? Just forget it and be real. How many times do we have that voice come into our head? Another story about a man who befriended uh, another believer who was working in his office, and he invited him to come to worship and to have a, a festive dinner afterward at his house. He assured him that his congregation was very friendly, very welcoming, he wouldn't be threatened or anything, and that his, his wife was a, a wonderful cook. The friend, though, politely refused. A few weeks later, he decided to invite him again. Come to worship, come to Bible class, and then we'll go home and have a, a great meal. But he refused. A third time he invited him, and he refused. The man decided to ask him directly, is there any reason why you won't come? The man answered him in this way. He said, well, if I go to your church and if I go to worship with you or if I go to that small group with you and I have dinner, you know what? I'll probably enjoy it. And I may even find some people that I, I really like. And so I might want to come back. I might want to do it again, but then I'll find myself in a quandary. If I go to worship this week, why do I not go at other times? If I truly love the fellowship of the people and at your house, am I not a hypocrite when I'm not in community all of the time? And before I know it, I'll have to start inviting people to my house. And I'll have to start inviting people to come to worship with me. And I'll have to be in worship on a regular basis. And because of all those reasons, I can't join you. If you think about it, there's something of that probably in us as well. That being afraid to commit to something because of what we fear it might mean. And so we keep it, we let it keep it from advancing our relationship and our connection to God. And so in many ways, as um, kind of unrealistic or humorous as the stories may be, for many people, this type of reasoning is all too real. Preventing people from participating in spiritual activities or observing any part of religious life. For those who are observant, the same kind of mentality is at play when it comes to certain routines our rote observances that keep us from reaching new horizons. That is, we refuse to see something in a different way or we refuse to experience something in a different way. And simply by refusing it, we are preventing ourselves from expanding. But most of us tend to create a certain comfort level and find it hard to try to find something new, to expand our intellectual or emotional borders. And so uh, another thing I thought about when I was reading this particular set of verses in Rashi's commentary that, okay, what if you didn't do the seven sets of seven, but you still should do the 50th? You know, my mind went to uh, what is sometimes called uh, in our circles uh, the twice-a-yearers, right, um, or the creasters, right? Do you know what a creaster is? Um, it's a little joke, like if someone says, are you a Christian, what are you? And you're like, I'm a priester, meaning I go to church at Christmas and Easter, 
great. Um, and we kind of know that. Uh, we kind of sometimes joke about that. Um, like this past year, 2,200 people go through here on uh, Easter Sunday, uh, the week before. It's not 2,200. Uh, the week after is not 2,200, right? Um, but going back to Rabbi Shlomo, he had a very beautiful perspective on this phenomenon. For him, Rabbi Shlomo, it wasn't Christmas and Easter, it was Yom Kippur and Passover. So Judaism has its twice a years as well. Um, but he compares it to children who live far away from their parents. Like, you know, maybe your adult children that have moved to Washington State or Hawaii or California or, you know, Ohio or something like that, right? They live far away. Uh, and they don't really stay in contact all that much with the parents during uh, the year. But they do make an effort to visit occasionally. Maybe they make it home for Thanksgiving or one of the big days or birthday or something. And although the parents might certainly feel neglected throughout the year or saddened by the situation of not only the physical distance but just the lack of connection in general, still when these children come home to visit, the parents are overjoyed to see them. And we can imagine, says Rabbi Shlomo, that it's the same kind of joy that God experiences when people come to worship, even if it's only a couple of times a year. The fact that the twice a years do make an effort, he said, needs to be acknowledged in a positive way because the alternative, being completely cut off, is a far worse scenario. So Rashi, in his explanation that began the discussion, is emphasizing that even if we don't observe everything perfectly, even if we're not always on top of our game, uh, that should not prevent us from connecting at any other time. We cannot use that as our excuse, but instead our encouragement to connect. It is interesting to note that in the verses we read there from Leviticus 25, the Jubilee year is referred to as a year of freedom. Uh, and freedom here meaning not being a slave to our past, not being afraid to try new things, learn new skills, and in a spiritual sense, listen to our deepest intuition when it is urging us to break new ground and break old habits and embrace the present moment without being a slave to old attitudes or being a slave to a being uh, in fear of what the future may hold. Last week, um, I think I mentioned that, or might have been, I, I lose track of where we're at sometimes, might have been a couple of weeks ago, when we looked at the concept or talked about the concept of loving your neighbor. And um, we, we saw that connection between loving God and loving your neighbor, that to love God is to love your neighbor, to love your neighbor is loving God. And then we look at Jesus, and he makes that same connection. We explored how he made that connection uh, from an exegetical point of view. And Jesus says that everything in Scripture hangs on that. Love God and love your neighbor. That everything hangs on that. And so I said that one year uh, when we were doing through, going through the Torah in a year, every week I would teach exclusively from that portion on how it taught how to love your neighbor. Uh, and so, because I had mentioned that, I thought we would do that this week um, and see an example of that in this week's portion, but also 
make uh, that deeper connection of how loving your neighbor is literally loving God. All right, so to do that, I want to look at Leviticus chapter 25, verse 14. It says, When you sell your property to your neighbor or buy any from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. So there it's not just the person selling isn't to wrong the buyer, but the buyer is not to wrong the seller. Like a lot of times we think of it only as one way, like, hey, that person selling that better not rip me off. But how many times do we think it's okay when we're the buyer that we've ripped the seller off, right? We think that's fine a lot of times. Like, that's just the way it goes. He should have known what it was worth, right? But it's clear, right? Don't wrong one another, right? The street goes both ways. Now, the genius of the Torah is often found in its articulation of great ethical and religious ideas in the form of simple, concrete, behavioral commandments. So here the Torah transforms an everyday activity of commerce, buying and selling property, into a religious act by commanding both the seller and the buyer not to wrong one another. So on a bigger scale, one of the things this is teaching us is that everything is holy. In the West, we've compartmentalized religion, and we've compartmentalized our relationship to God, and we do not think everything is sacred. We think religion and our relationship with God can be kept over here in this box, but how I operate Monday through Friday in business has nothing to do with what you see or who you see on Sunday morning. How I speak and the language I use and the way I treat people, that has nothing to do with uh, me wanting my kids to go to a Christian school, right? Uh, and, uh, but everything, Scripture teaches there is no compartmentalizing this. Everything is holy. Everything is sacred. So even the everyday things like buying and selling, that has holiness attached to it. Theme of Leviticus, how you carry out everything should have that flavor, that savory flavor of the, the sacrifices. It should have that scent of holiness. And so we're called to be mindful of the holiness in all things, including something as simple as going to the store and buying something. Recurring theme in the Torah, and indeed, one of its most powerful ideas is that every human being is created but selim Elohim, in the image of God, in the divine image. Here we are told if we take advantage of another in business, we're tarnishing the image of God, which we ourselves represent. In the Talmud, this warning uh, against wronging another in a real estate transaction is actually broadened to include all transactions and all verbal wrongs as well. In Bava Metzia, the sages go so far as to say this, and quote, one may also not feign interest in a purchase when he re in reality has no money, since this is known only to the heart, and everything known only to the heart is ultimately written in the Torah, and you shall fear the Lord your God. So think about that, how that got expanded. 
How many times have you feigned interest in something? We are enjoined to be scrupulous in our financial dealings that even when we have not acted or spoken wrongfully, but rather only given a seller a somewhat misleading impression that we may purchase his or her goods, this too is the equivalent of wronging one another. This verse from Leviticus 25.14 is simply an application. It's simply an application of the greater commandment to love your neighbor as yourself and to do unto your neighbor that which you would have done to yourself. But more so, what we are learning is that to love our neighbor as ourselves means to recognize the divinity, the holiness, the spark of godliness that shines within every human being. That is, to love one's neighbor is to love the divinity, the B'Tselem Elohim, the image of God that is in your neighbor. And sometimes, you know, when I was coming up and, and my rabbis were teaching me what this is called like musar, the, the ethics of, of living the life, um, they often told me that whenever I felt arrogant in a conversation or whenever I felt I had um, an upper hand in the conversation or whenever I felt that I was being bullied in the conversation, like whenever I just, something wasn't right, to always look at the person and remind myself they are an image bearer. That within them and beneath the hard shell, beneath the crustiness, and yes, behind the sin even, there is an image bearer. There is the image of God there. That this is indeed someone who has the very light of the creator pumping in them somewhere. And that before I would act or react, to remind myself that how I acted or reacted to that individual was acting and reacting to the image that they bore, which was God himself. Which this goes back to something we studied earlier in a previous Torah class. Shaviti Adonai Lenegdi Tamid. I place God before me always. Psalm 16, verse 8. If there's a human being in front of you, God is in front of you in some way, in some capacity. That's an image bearer. That's a created being from the Almighty that is here and is loved just as much as you are loved and has a reason for being here just as much as you have a reason for being here. Uh, and so this particular verse at first just seems like, well, just... Be fair in your business is really about looking and seeing the image of God in these people. As such, any act that insults or takes advantage of or oppresses our neighbor, our fellow human being, would be considered an affront to the holiness that lies within the human being. Of course, very often we do not even come close to loving our neighbor as ourselves. Because the reality is, is we may not even like them, right? There's just some people you don't like, and you don't know why, right? You just know you don't like them. But here, we're learning that we are not expected to love every person in the way most of us understand that phrase, love. 
but rather we're to acknowledge the image of God that lies with everyone we meet, even when it's hard to find because he or she doesn't act in ways that make that divinity more apparent. You're not called to love them the way you love your spouse or love your child or love your best friend, but because you're called to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, you're to see within that person the image of that God and therefore love the image of God. So it doesn't mean you have to like everybody. It doesn't mean that at all. It means you're to recognize that that's an image bearer. Our challenge is to see beyond the individual's human failings and to love the divinity that's in all of us, that connects all of us. Because when we love the image of God in the other person, we're not only loving that person, we are loving God himself. Which now you can see the connection of loving your neighbor is loving God. And likewise, hating your neighbor and wishing harm upon your neighbor, right, is having that towards God himself. That's First John. You cannot claim you love God and at the same time hate your brother because God is in your brother. So that's a, a practical example of loving your neighbor, um, which at first is just about selling property and don't do each other dirty. But it kind of, spend some time with it, kind of expands out from that. Let's keep looking in the text. We'll move into Bechukatai now, the, the, second, the second of the double portion. Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 34. It says, These are the commandments that the Lord gave Moses for the Israelite people on Mount Sinai. So double portion, it kind of has your bookends, remember. Um, biblical writers love bookends. Bookends galore throughout the scripture. How did the portion Bahar begin? On Mount Sinai, Bahar Sinai. How does the portion Bechukatai, the end of the double portion in? Bahar Sinai, on Mount Sinai. So there's your sandwich, your Sinai sandwich. And then the meat's in the middle. Very classic biblical structure. Okay? Uh, and so that got me thinking, uh, since we have kind of mountain as our bread to our sandwich, what's the role of mountains in Scripture? And then we kind of think about that. How might that then transfer uh, from mountains of place to mountains in time? So, as I thought about it, Mountains hold a very important place in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. As we talked about when we began this evening, Bahar, the name of that first portion, literally means on the mountain, as in Mount Sinai. And the portion, Bechukatai, the second portion, um, it ends with, these are the commandments the Lord gave Moses for the Israelites on Mount Sinai. Referencing the metaphor of mountains, uh, Rabbi Chaim Stern, uh, during a Rosh Hashanah message, uh, 
opened with these words. He said, and I quote, To stand on a mountaintop, to take in the breathtaking vista of terrain, it brings a spiritual refreshment that makes the climb or the drive worth the effort. Maybe you've had that experience, right? Mountains can be breathtaking. They can be breathtaking to see uh, in the distant landscape. You know, uh, growing up in Georgia, at best we have hollers, right, and hills, but nothing at all. And I remember the first time I went out west and was like in Utah and in Montana and Oregon and Washington State and, and really saw like mountains and it was breathtaking. And then when you make your way up to the top, right? Uh, like no matter how long it took you to get there or how exhausting the walk was or um, like when I was in Colorado and I, I wasn't driving it, and that was the scariest predicament of being a passenger because you're like right on the edge of some of these mountains as you go up. But when you make it to the top and you get that view, right, it, it, everything's worth it. The rabbi continued, he said, our ancestors also recognized the spiritual potential at the peak. In fact, some of the most important events in the early history of God's people occurred on mountaintops. At Rosh Hashanah, we recall the binding of Isaac at Mount Moriah, which is the site that was destined to be the great Jerusalem temple. Shavuot, or Pentecost, celebrates the revelation of God's word given to Moses on top of Mount Sinai. And later on in the Bible, Moses is given a glimpse of the promised land from Mount Nebo. And Elijah the prophet calls us away from idolatry atop Mount Carmel, where modern-day Haifa is. That's why the psalmist cries out in Psalm 121, verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the mountaintops. As there are mountains in space, there are also mountains in time. There are crucial moments in life when we are lifted up, when our vision becomes clearer, when our perspective becomes better, when moments uh, we have where the haze seems to clear, when life's confusion seems suddenly to show a pattern, where things all of a sudden begin to make sense. We have the phrase, it's a mountaintop experience, right? Which means you have had this experience that's unlike any other, whether it's by that revelation, that clear insight, or by something you've experienced unlike anything else, we claim it's a mountaintop experience. You know, or you think uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., when he has that grand vision uh, of equality and so forth, he talks about, I've been to the mountaintop, right? I've been to the mountaintop. I've seen it. I've experienced um, there has been something revealed to us, some beauty, some insight into truth that we had not possessed before or even suspected. And there are moments in life that become mountains. Moments when our vision is improved and certain trusts which we had ignored are only half-sensed, become bold beacons of light. Trivialities are reduced to their proper size. And so... I began to think about, like, one of the things when you have the, the mountaintop experience and why so many of the Bible's events 
occur on mountains, right? It has that thematic appeal, right? There's that literary appeal of why it's happening on a mountain. When you have that, you have that realization of who really cares about all the petty annoyances or small desires that only a little while before our mountaintop experience would have consumed us or driven us crazy or filled us with anger or longing, but now we realize aren't that important. Sometimes as a pastor, I have those mountain experiences when I get overwhelmed with the administrative duties and the 72 emails that talk about why the hymn yesterday was too slow and, uh, you know, why we should do this and why we shouldn't do that and why it should go this way and what it was like before I came when it was a whole lot better and all of that. Then there'll be those moments that I just go and visit someone in their home or at the hospital and then there's just this connection. You're like, you know what? That's why I'm here. This is what it's about, right? It's about this moment with this person bringing him this hope and experiencing this. And it puts all that other stuff into perspective. And you realize, yeah, it has its place and I'm going to have to deal with it. But no, it isn't so big a deal, right? Mountains have that role. Mountains give us that perspective. And so the important things that we had underestimated or that we had taken for granted, they now become precious beyond words. To speak of the revelation received at those mountains of space and in those mountains of time is to speak of the revelation of God and the word of God that was so long given to us and spoken all the way back, as it says there in the text, at Mount Sinai, when God revealed to Moses in the language of men the Torah, the Word of God. And so the Word of God becomes for us a mountaintop experience. It's what puts things in perspective. It's what takes our breath away. It's what, it's what revitalizes us. And so the Scripture, the Word of God, Sinai, that's what Sinai represents from a Hebraic mindset. It's where... The word of God came down into our language so that we could relate to the infinite. It's our mountain. It's our mountaintop experience. Being mindful of, <coughs> excuse me, that kukatai, um, this last portion uh, of, of Leviticus. As, as is usual, uh, I like to kind of end the evening by kind of reflecting back on the portion, um, kind of in a, a way that uh, has a spiritual application and, and kind of sets into a way to grasp some of the arcane language or concepts uh, and kind of relate to them uh, in, a, in a more concrete way. And so I want to do that with the Chuchatai, um, because as Leviticus ends, eventually Deuteronomy will do something similar as well. Um, Deuteronomy, as it comes to the, will speak of like two mountains, and from one mountain blessings are given, and one mountain curses are given. Uh, we kind of have something similar to that going on here, and that may seem distant from us, but I think once we realize what the Torah is really trying to describe for us, 
is states of consciousness, right? You're going to have one of two mindsets in this world. And the mindset that you have is what makes all the difference. So it's couched in, again, that language of obey and get and disobey and be punished. But I really think it's talking about states of consciousness. So that's what I want us to look at. So on the surface, it seems that the book of Leviticus ends with some stern uh, admonitions. Simplistically, it seems to end saying that, hey, if you follow all of these commandments that God has given you, um, then you're going to be rewarded. And if you do not, you're going to pay a heavy price. The message seemingly is that if you are good, then life will go well for you. But if you are bad, you will bring suffering upon yourself. Yet when I look around at my world, I see good people suffering and people who have acted immorally enjoying the fruit of their crimes. And so I'm sent to find a deeper meaning, the deeper blessing of Bechuchatai. When I open to the tone of the text, not just its content, a feeling of familiarity washes over me because I know these places. The blessings and the curses of the Chuchatai list, I think, 98 curses in like a chapter. That's a whole lot of cursing in a chapter. And it doesn't give that many blessings. But the blessings and the curses actually are describing two different states of consciousness which may become the lens of perception that mediate our experience of life's gifts and life's challenges. So we always have to remember the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God. But it is written in the language of men which means the language of men this was written in was 3,000 years ago. And so their metaphors and their idioms and their figures of speech and their ways of explaining deep concepts are completely different than ours. We would love to use metaphors that involve physics and H2O as a, an example of the Trinity and all kinds of things that they had never heard of. They didn't even know what a germ was. They didn't know what a virus was, right? They don't have the same framework. And so a lot of times the challenge is to say, what are they trying to describe? What are they trying to describe? And I really think, again, with the overall theme of holiness and being unique and set apart for God's purposes in this world, it's saying, look, there's two outlooks in life. There's two ways you can look at things going on around you. And you can experience the states of heaven and hell right here on earth. So the first state of consciousness that Bechuchatai describes is what I'm going to call the heaven state. In this state, we notice the miraculous change of the seasons. When we eat a fresh piece of fruit, we really taste it and enjoy the moment. There's a sense of enoughness in what we have, a feeling of ultimate safety, even regardless of changing circumstances or even health. We still feel that ultimately, 
I'm safe. In this consciousness of heaven, we are not ruled by fear. Nor are we controlled by ego. And so we are not overwhelmed by whatever obstacle or enemy we may encounter. In this state of consciousness, there's a sense of spaciousness, a sense of possibility. The Torah awakens us to the possibility of constant grace. That again, no matter how unfaithful I may be, my God is always faithful to me. That God has always got a never-ending flow of his grace and his love, especially as manifested in his son, the Messiah, for me. Deuteronomy 11, it says, Then you and your children will live out on earth the divine promise given to your ancestors to live heavenly days right here on this land. That's an amazing promise. Once we fully experience this state of heaven, it becomes a seed that we carry within us to remind us that the liberation from the slavery of hell is always possible. But Kukatai goes on to warn us about the other state of consciousness, what I will call the hell consciousness. When we're in the state of hell, it seems that God and everyone is against us. Everyone's got an angle. Everyone's coming for me. Everyone's trying to replace me. Everything is negative and chaotic and unexplainable and random and harsh. It's scary and you're driven by fear. That's the consciousness of hell. To be ruled by fear. Every challenge we face, it seems impossible. And so we're obsessed with a nagging feeling that we're always lacking something and we become preoccupied with the sense that something is always wrong even when we eat we're not satisfied in this state of hell even the sound of a driven leaf will frighten us and send us running and so here we feel like strangers and life itself feels like enemy territory in this consciousness, anxiety causes us to always be defensive. And our uncircumcised heart, the heart that is layered over with armor, prevents us from knowing true joy or receiving the flow of that never-ending grace. The blessing of Bechuchatai comes to us when we begin to recognize these two states in our own experience. This recognition is the beginning of freedom from the tyranny of the mind. We can learn that heaven is our destiny. It is what we were made for. And when we feel lost in hell, we can remember that grace is offered to us abundantly. And it's only a matter of time until we find the path that leads us home to our Father. It is an incredibly radical realization when we discover that is the inner state of consciousness and not our outer circumstances that determine whether our lives are blessed or cursed. Personally, this realization stands as the foremost challenge to my own ego. 
I've struggled for nearly half a century to manipulate my outer circumstances. Convinced that if I change my outer circumstances, I will have inner peace. And so my fear-driven ego says, if only I had this, if only I had that, if only I had that job, that lover, a slimmer body, nicer clothes, a better teacher, better friends who were more loyal, or only if I had more time. The list goes on and on, doesn't it? If only I had, then everything would be okay because I'm basing everything on my external circumstances. That's the state of consciousness of hell, and that is to be cursed. The wisdom of my soul that is connected to the divine image is there to remind me heaven is my home regardless of my outward circumstances. If it is true that only the inner circumstances matter, then why do we struggle so much to change the world in the outer circumstances to alleviate suffer or to bring peace or to heal the afflicted? The spiritual challenge of Bechukatai is to do this work not from fear or anger or compulsion but from the radiant holiness that flows from the work of our priest within, from our tabernacle within. It becomes our natural way of being in the world. When we have recognized our own hell states, we know the suffering of others. And we understand what it's like, and so we can reach out and offer a vision of truth of their inheritance. And we can simply radiate the truth and our presence will transform the world. Steeped in the consciousness of heaven, it is impossible not to act from a place of compassion. It's impossible not to act from a position where you will want to help that which is outward and external. But we want our motivation to be flowing from our contentment and who we are and our relationship to God and letting it flow out. That is the state of heaven, which is the state of receiving for the sake of sharing. And the state of hell is simply the state of receiving for myself alone. When we do that, we improperly connect and we're cursed. But when it flows, and when we receive and it flows and comes out, that what we have received, we give. Then the interior circumstances change just as the exterior. And that is to be blessed. We will close there for this evening as we have finished the book of Leviticus. So I hope now you have some different eyes as you go through those passages in the future. Uh, also, uh, on the, the website uh, that's listed on the handout there, if you go to the, the teachings page on the website, there are archives from other courses I've taught on the Torah. You can listen to the same portion, but different perspective and so forth that I gave that particular uh, year to kind of fill in some details and things like that. So I'd always, always encourage you to do that through the week, to read through the portion now. 
uh, now that you kind of have the mindset for it and you know, what's, what's, what's on the, the plate of appointment for us from God and living in the times, uh, and you can also tune in to some of those other uh, classes. Uh, we will meet next week. We will begin the book of Numbers. So let's close with a blessing. Blessed are you, Lord God, who has given to us the gift of the Torah. Amen. Shalom, shalom.